They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. When the great American novelist and writer Edith Wharton wrote her memoir, A Backward Glance, in 1934, just a few years before she died, her goal was to tell the story of her life in her words and on her terms. Given her extraordinary international fame, in part as a chronicler of the Gilded Age, she knew her life would be written about and studied well after her passing. And as with many writers' memoirs, what she tells us may not be as illuminating as what she leaves out. A memoir is, of course, after all, an attempt to control the narrative. And what she left out is significant. It was known to those in her intimate circle that her marriage to Teddy Wharton brought its challenges, its heartache, and its anger. But hidden in the leaves of her life was another connection, a deeply passionate, relatively short love affair, conducted mostly in the hotels and country inns around Paris that brought her emotions and at times a joy that she had long abandoned ever feeling. Her connection also brought pain, confusion, and uncertainty, as the darker side of affairs can certainly do. Her lover was complicated, overwhelmingly sensually charming, and duplicitous. However, the few years of this affair, mostly between 1907 and 1910, produced moments of joyous outpouring of work and one of the most extraordinary poems, passionate and sensual and deeply personal, that Edith Wharton ever wrote. The wider knowledge of Edith Wharton's affair with the American journalist Morton Fullerton was for many years lost, and as Edith hoped, never part of the public interpretation of her story. Relatively recently, in 1980, a cache of over 300 letters long assumed destroyed, and to some, their existence completely unknown, came out on the market. And that finally told the tale. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Welcome back for another episode where every two weeks I'll take you behind the velvet curtains and under the glitter and the gold of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. And of course, with a nice cup of tea right here at my side. When Edith Wharton died in 1937 at her home in the countryside outside of Paris, she was one of America's most famous writers. She had written over 50 books and was perhaps mostly known for her incisive portraits of the Gilded Age in The House of Mirth and The Age of Innocence, which had won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1921. She was the first woman to take that honor. She was a prolific short story writer and even had published volumes of travel writing chronicling her motor flights, as she called them, throughout the villages and back lanes of Italy and France. She wrote poetry and even a volume on interior design. 
Upon her death, a great many of her papers and unfinished manuscripts were sold by her literary executor to Yale University with the stipulation that they be embargoed and inaccessible for 30 years. Several friends and scholars attempted portraits and biographical treatments of her life, but without a more extensive collection of her own papers, letters, and diaries accessible, a more accurate picture certainly proved difficult. When Yale appointed the scholar Roger Warrington Baldwin Lewis, known as R.W.B. Lewis, to begin work on the official biography in 1968, full access to her papers became available, and he began to follow the threads and interview contacts still living or somehow in the lines of descent from those who knew Wharton intimately. One afternoon in The Hague, In 1967, as Lewis sat talking with descendants of Wharton's last personal secretary, mention was made of a letter to her secretary from an American journalist named Morton Fullerton with a curiously personal comment on the depth and intimacy of Wharton's sensual passion. Lewis sat up. Well, how would this particular man, what was his name again? A a journalist, in fact? How would he have known or been able to comment on anything as personal as that? A further fascinating interview that Lewis conducted with Fullerton's own cousin indicated that it seemed, yes, Morton Fullerton did have a passionate affair with Edith Wharton. And as the story began to take shape, Lewis was told of a poem, a lengthy poem some have since thought, reminiscent of Walt Whitman, that Wharton had written on the morning after a night with Fullerton at a hotel in London. The poem did in fact exist, and Fullerton's cousin had it. Lewis and his assistants researched a trail of literary clues that led to a much larger collection of Fullerton's papers, including letters between himself and his good friend Henry James, and gave great insight into the various other intimate affairs that Fullerton conducted, often with famous and aristocratic women and men. Still, there was not enough to expand the story of Wharton's own relationship with the elusive and mysterious lover until 1980. A Dutch bookseller brought an archive of letters onto the market. It was a cache of intimate, deeply personal letters from Edith Wharton to her lover, Morton Fullerton, covering nearly each stage of their affair from the spring of 1907 until the summer of 1910. Wharton had demanded several times that her letters be returned to her or destroyed, and Fullerton, coy throughout, retained the letters as they had come to him. He died in Paris in his mid-80s in 1952, but these deeply personal expressions of the stages of love survived. But let me take you back to the beginning. By early 1906, with the astonishing success of the publication of The House of Mirth the previous year, Edith Wharton was now a best-selling author and nearly a household name. Several years before, she and her husband, Edward Robbins Wharton, known as Teddy, had left the social pressures of Newport and the snobbiness of New York's Fifth Avenue to find a base where, when not in Europe, they could spend time in the hills of southern New England. The autumn of 1907 was unseasonably cold following a bright and brilliant summer that the Whartons had spent at the Mount. Edith had spent that spring in Europe, this particular time in Paris, and had returned to the beauty of the Berkshires and to spend her summer in her grand home in Lenox, Massachusetts. Her usual plan for the year was to spend the winter and spring in Europe and the summer in fall, at least in her early married years, in Newport and New York. But now she spent those long summer days gazing over her flowering formal gardens by the cool shores of Laurel Lake in Lenox. 
As the days deepened into fall, this October felt unseasonably cold. Over several days in late October, she had been entertaining her friend, author and artist Elliot Gregory, and a man she had met the previous spring in Paris through Henry James, the writer and journalist Morton Fullerton. She didn't know Morton Fullerton particularly well at this point. They had met in social circles, and he could likely help her with her growing international reputation. One of Edith's greatest joys was to take her guests off in her motor car, her first being a Pinard Lavasseur bought in Paris a few years before. Her motor flights through the New England countryside produced stunning views of the dark green mountains, the sloping valleys, brilliant foliage, and great amounts of crisp, fresh air. With Cook, her chauffeur at the wheel, often Teddy seated beside him, and Edith and her guest or guest seated high up in the back surveying all, her car trips became an expected moment of any visit with the Whartons. It had snowed the night before on that particular October day as Edith sat beside Mr. Fullerton as they zipped along looking out over the snow-dusted fields. Cook felt that the roads were becoming slick and slushy, and pulling over to cover the wheels with chains, Edith and Morton took refuge on a dry log nearby to smoke cigarettes and look for any wildflowers still poking their heads through the new snow. Nearby, a great burst of yellow flashed above the snow, and Edith and Morton picked branches from the towering shrub. It was a bit of witch hazel. Long known to generations of New Englanders for its healing and medicinal properties, the tendrils of the witch hazel burst forth in golden bloom very late in the season, bringing its beauty to the often dry and barren fields. In folklore, the witch hazel is noted for its color and healing properties as it blooms when most of what is around it is dying. When Edith Wharton met Morton Fullerton, she was 45, her career a respected author on The Ascendant, yet she was caught in a challenging and frustrating marriage. Teddy, certainly devoted and affable, was not an intellectual or emotional equal. Morton Fullerton was 42, a well-established writer living in Paris, frequenting the literary and artistic circles of Paris's most exclusive quarters, and as we shall see, seemingly at the ready to embark on any new amorous alliance presented to him. The symbolism of the witch hazel flower seems not to have been lost on either of them in this particular moment. Wharton's emotional life with Teddy was yielding little fruit. When she and Fullerton had met that previous spring, she found him clearly charming and with a great intellect that stirred hers and with a charismatic sensuality that was only to increase. Armed with a letter of introduction and recommendation from Henry James himself, he had asked to see her when he was in New England that fall, and she enthusiastically invited him to spend a couple of days at the Mount. They had mutually enjoyed their time together reading an essay on James that Fullerton had just written. A few days later, after his departure from the Mount, Edith received a thank you letter from Fullerton. And as she opened the letter, a sprig of the witch hazel that they had picked together fell from the pages onto her desk. It was that moment that Wharton turned her emotions and her resolve to following the thread of this new connection. A few days later, she began a new diary in which she was to secretly record her thoughts, feelings, and emotions throughout the early months of the affair. She called the diary L'âme close, from a reference to the poem of Pierre Ronsard. Hermione Lee, Wharton's most recent biographer, translates this as the shut-in or closed-down soul, and it is often called the life apart. 
The journal was a secret place where she could record, imagine, and relive moments real or anticipated that were to pour forth from this relationship. Many of the references are unclear, significant only to Wharton herself, but capturing and reflecting her intensifying emotions. It's clear, as it can be for anyone, that this connection was the result of some undefinable convergence of qualities. In this case, Fullerton was someone with whom Wharton could talk to on the same level, enjoy a deep love of literature, philosophy, theater, and music. He was handsome, of course, but it was more than that. He had a quality of sensuality that can appear in someone that one can neither define nor ignore. And encountering this kind of combination is something that one just never plans. Following Fullerton's departure that fall, Edith was deeply anxious to return to Paris and indeed moved up her ocean passage to December in order to get back as quickly as possible to what was becoming her adoptive city and to what would surely be further encounters, by chance or on purpose, with Fullerton in her social circle. Paris had always been part of Edith Wharton's life. When she was four years old, her parents left the post-Civil War construction zone that was New York City, along with its devalued dollar, and took her to Europe, where her sensibility was profoundly formed through lengthy stays in Italy, Germany, France, and Spain. After marrying Teddy Wharton, the newly married couple escaped the confines of Newport and New York and traveled regularly to Europe. For the Whartons, it was usually the remote corners of Italy and its ancient cities and sites that captured their time. But on each trip, there was usually a stopover in Paris for Edith to order some of her dresses, see theater, or perhaps even some friends. By 1906, even after the move to the Mount just a few years before, Edith became restless and began to turn her focus from her European-inspired grand country home in America to spending more and more time with longer and longer stays in Paris, which after all was the real thing. Her brother had settled there after all, as had her mother before her death in 1901. It was her friendship with the George Vanderbilt's good friends from the Newport Circle that provided her with her first foothold in the City of Light. Early in 1907, she and Teddy rented the Vanderbilt's apartment at 58 Rue de Varennes in the historic, ancient, aristocratic neighborhood of Paris, the legendary 7th arrondissement, the Faubourg Saint-Germain. With its streets lined with mansions and townhouses built in the 17th and 18th centuries before the revolution, the great and grand Faubourg meant tradition and the glory of the old ways. Social life in the Faubourg fascinated Edith. The neighborhood was where one found what was left of the French aristocracy living in these long-held ancestral mansions with crumbling foundations and often crumbling inhabitants. Behind its stern facades and imposing, heavy wooden doors, it was a world that combined the gracious, old elegance of France's past with an intellectual element of artists and writers and creative spirits wandering through its damask-draped salons. Far from the bars and the boîte of Montmartre and the raucous bohemian life of the left bank, the Faubourg brought together tradition and eccentricity. A high intellectual sensibility was the price of admission. Edith Wharton was given entree into the Salons of the Faubourg through her great friend, the French writer Paul Bourget, who she had met along with his wife in Newport years before and had formed a deep bond. And in those 18th century drawing rooms, she came to know Jean Cocteau, André Gide, and the deeply eccentric, elegant poet Anna de Noailles. 
And in that spring of 1907, months before he had come to the Mount, she had made the acquaintance of Morton Fullerton. Fullerton was a friend, perhaps protege even, of Henry James, who mentored him in some ways, being a younger writer, and whom James was all too eager to present to the great American lady of letters, Edith Wharton. James, as Wharton was to do as well, memorialized Fullerton in fiction. In James's case, we see Morton appear as the Englishman Merton Densher in The Wings of the Dove. He appears as George Darrow in Wharton's 1912 novel, The Reef. Now, a year after their first meeting and with a simmering attraction between them, Fullerton became a regular companion at the side of Madame Wharton in that spring of 1908, accompanying her to the theater, concerts, the opera, lectures, and even meeting in the various salons of the Faubourg set and coming to dinner and tea at the Whartons in the Rue de Varennes. Teddy's attentions and presence were erratic. He didn't find the deep allure that Paris provided for his wife, and he always felt an outsider around its intellectual and artistic core, the very thing, of course, that Edith Wharton loved. In addition, the progression of his mental condition, likely what we now know as bipolar disorder, that plagued his father and was misdiagnosed and badly treated in Teddy for years, was now beginning to take hold and causing emotional pain for both himself and Edith, who had little idea how to manage its effects. With Teddy away for visits with friends out of town and finally leaving Paris to pursue a hopeful rest cure in the Arkansas hot springs back in America— Edith found herself with open time to spend with Fullerton, exploring galleries, performances, and even excursions to the historic villages around Paris, such as the ancient Saint-Lys with its great cathedral. Spending time together, it's been said that Edith imagined them as modern-day incarnations of the great lovers from the 19th-century French literature. And she was particularly inspired by the author Georges Sand, whose passionate romantic rendezvous had been a subject of amusement and interest when she and Henry James together had visited the writer's former home in Nohant the previous spring. At some point, and when is not exactly known, Edith and Morton became lovers that spring of 1908. It was a moment or series of them that Wharton kept even from her secret diary. It's unclear just who in Wharton's circle knew exactly what and when her relationship with Monsieur Fullerton had taken on a deeper level, but it can be imagined and has been suggested that her servants were perhaps aware and possibly even helpful as much as they could be to the amorous couple. Meetings could take place under certain paintings in the Louvre or inside stops of the Paris metro to avoid being seen on the street. Their time together included wanderings in tiny, winding streets of Paris's most ancient quarters, where they could feel alone, as well as in Paris's great destination for lovers, the iconic and stately Luxembourg Gardens. Edith and Morton wrote consistently to each other and resorted to an elaborate system of passing messages back and forth between his office and her home, indicating romantic musings from their last encounter or suggesting a meeting for the current day. Often, Edith found a hastily written note from Morton delivered to her, which appeared on her breakfast tray, dropped off by Morton on his way to work. The affair opened a level of passion it seems Wharton didn't know she had or certainly never thought she would feel. 
As recorded by her biographers, her entries into her secret journal, Lamclos, reflected an almost girlish, intense, flirtatious response to their meetings. And her recent great biographer, Hermione Lee, suggests that they have the tone of the love scenes in great French literature. Along with the secret love diary she had begun at the Mount, Edith kept a daily agenda in which she cryptically recorded their meetings and assignations. Entries were written in French, Italian, and German as a kind of code. For example, her notation for meeting could simply be the letter Z for the German zusammen, meaning together. Wharton seemed on the edge of great emotion often as the affair unfolded, and the short, sharp bursts of passionate emotional response allowed her to compose a number of short stories and also return to poetry writing, and perhaps for the first time write poems that she felt were too private to publish. It was the brief, emotional form of poetry that suited her inner life at the moment. The effect of the affair was indeed, as Wharton put it, to give her someone to talk to. She felt a deep communion of spirit with Morton, and they could both share their intimate readings of literature and philosophy and culture combined with a physical intimacy, a combination it seems clear she had likely never had. Many months later, in describing their first moments together, she chose a passage from an essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson. The moment my eye fell on him, I was content. The affair filled an emotional, intellectual, and physical void that it seems had been with Wharton for so much of her life. Hermione Lee notes in her writings of the affair that aspects of it ended up for Wharton, not surprisingly, as thinly veiled fiction. For example, in her novel The Reef that I mentioned earlier, written during the period, Lee suggests a parallel between Wharton's emotions and the young, in-love Sophie Viner, who says, Is it true? Is it really true? Is it really happening to me? And Lee goes on to relate other passages from Wharton's writings in which she writes that she felt an indescribable current of communication flowering between myself and someone else. This must be what happy women feel. It's been suggested that Wharton often felt that she was outside these new experiences, almost as if watching one of her own characters play out the drama. But now it's time for a short break while I refill my tea. And when we come back, we'll take a look at who Edith Wharton's lover actually was. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History podcast to pick up the story of the secret love affair of Edith Wharton and Morton Fullerton. Although Morton Fullerton displayed this trait early on, it was during this summer apart that he displayed perhaps his greatest and most destructive habit, at least to the in-love Edith. And that was to simply disappear. Some say that one knows everything about a new lover right from the beginning. The signs are all there, and indeed, they may well have been here. 
But as fault-filled humans in the face of love, we just often choose to ignore them or look beyond them. Shortly after meeting Fullerton in the spring of 1907, now over a year before, Wharton had written to her dear friend Sally Norton back in America that she had met the most intriguing new man. Her words conveying her first impression were more accurate than she would likely ever know. Very intelligent, but slightly mysterious, I think. And mysterious, Morton Fullerton would prove without a doubt to be. When Edith met him, Fullerton had been working in Paris since the early 1890s, and while born American, he had developed a fully French sensibility and demeanor. He spoke French fluently, and through his work as a Paris correspondent for the London Times, he developed deep connections into the French literary world, which impressed Edith. It seemed that he might, after all, be helpful in placing the serialization of the House of Mirth in a French publication. He was not tall, but he had arresting blue eyes, dark, slicked-back hair, a prominent and dramatic, even, you could say, mustache. And perhaps most notable of all, he was exceedingly dapper with his cane and his hat, always immaculately and stylishly dressed. It seemed it was difficult for much of anyone to take their eyes off of him when they met him. Fullerton was born in 1865 in Connecticut and was the product of good, solid New England stock, the son of a minister, in fact. He'd studied at Harvard and traveled extensively in Europe and even Egypt. And he'd lived in London before landing across the channel in Paris to work for the London Times. While living in London, he spent his time in the society of the high-spirited Edwardian dandies and counted Oscar Wilde himself among his friends. Fullerton's sensual style led to an affair with Lord Ronald Glover, the British sculptor who, it's been said, was Wilde's inspiration for the enigmatic Dorian Gray. And he had an affair with the Canadian poet William Bliss Carman. Ever attracted to powerful, aristocratic women, it seems, Fullerton shifted his affections to Lady Margaret Brooke, a figure in the eccentric artistic circles of Edwardian London. Perhaps the most bizarre of Fullerton's amorous exploits began with his marriage in 1903 to an opera singer, the French Camille Chabert, who had a daughter, and stories conflict as to whether the daughter was actually his. Divorcing Chabert after only a year, he fell into the arms of a minor Parisian vaudeville star named Adèle Moutot, whose stage name was Madame Miracourt. Although their affair was of indeterminable length, he remained living in her Paris house for convenience, it was said, as he began his affair with Edith Wharton. The story continues to add complicated layers with the addition of Catherine Fullerton, who was actually a much younger cousin of Morton's raised by his parents and to whom he had proposed marriage and launched an engagement shortly before he and Wharton met. Detailing all of this convoluted, tangled web is to say that when Edith Wharton met Morton Fullerton, he was a divorced man with an ex-wife, perhaps a daughter, a British aristocratic ex-lover, a jealous former mistress who had begun to blackmail him, and a sort of eyebrow-raising relationship with his cousin to whom he was now engaged, and a list of homosexual affairs that he wanted, above all, to keep quiet. And it remains unclear just how much of any or all of this Wharton ever knew. 
The most dramatic moment when Fullerton's past intersected with Wharton's present was the result of Madame Miracourt, his music hall mistress, blackmailing him, claiming that she had possession of letters that confirmed his bisexual nature. Yes, Morton Fullerton was mysterious, all right. He would disappear for periods of time. Letters to Edith would stop or become sporadic when they were apart, and the result was Wharton's insecurities taking over and causing her great pain and confusion. That summer of 1908, back at the Mount, Edith tried to busy herself but received little response from Fullerton, who was still in Europe. She began, it seems, increasingly to confide in Henry James, her confidant, and pour out some of her most personal matters— We'll never know just what Edith Wharton confided to Henry James about the intimacy of their affair. Shortly before he died, James burned nearly all the letters she had written to him, and his, back to her, contained only veiled and oblique references. In moments of her personal writing and letters, Edith made various allusions to her fear and belief that the affair was not to last all that long and had begun a certain resolve to that inevitability. By the end of 1908, still on American shores, preparing to return to Paris, she, with great formality, asked Fullerton to return her letters. Taking some time to reply, he informed her that he still had the letters, and from his point of view, the relationship was not at an end. Back in Paris that winter, while trying to recalibrate the relationship, Edith found that Morton was clear. He wanted to continue the intimacy, and she relented, spending many Happy days, as she called them, with him that spring. Morton, never wealthy, continued to need money. His writing career had stagnated and Madame Miracourt continued to demand payment to keep his secrets secret. Responding to Morton's need for funds, even if not really knowing entirely why, Edith and Henry James created a scheme to pay off the blackmailing mistress certainly without knowing all the nuances and backstory. Edith suggested to her publisher that Morton would be perfect for a book on Paris. James, whose publisher it also was, suggested an advance of a hundred pounds. Morton received this generous advance for the book that ultimately never came. Madame Miracourt, however, was paid off and all were silent. One of the most significant moments in their relationship, and certainly a dramatic third act in many ways, took place in that June of 1909 in London. Edith was on her way to spend the summer in England, Morton was headed stateside for a family visit, and Teddy, again, was out of the picture, and off in Canada continuing to seek treatment for his declining health. After dining with Henry James at the Charing Cross Hotel on London's Strand in an early summer evening... Edith and Morton retired to their suite, number 92. The next morning, Morton left early to meet James, who was seeing him off at the train station. Edith, filled with emotion, rose from the bed, wandered to the writing desk in the hotel room, and began to write one of her most extraordinary poems, Terminus. Shameless, erotically charged, passionate, and a confirmation of her strong sexual nature, Terminus remained in private papers unknown and unseen by the public and even scholars until the mid-1970s. The poem was finally published by R.W.B. Lewis in his biography of Edith Wharton. Wonderful was the long secret night you have, my lover, palm to palm, breast to breast in the gloom, seeking each other's souls in the depths of unfathomed caresses, 
and through the long windings of passion, emerging again to the stars, and lying there hushed in your arms as the waves of rapture receded, and far down the margin of being, we heard the low beat of the soul. What is, of course, extraordinary about this is that Wharton was not writing for publication. Quite the contrary, she was writing to attempt to put form to her own deep moments of communion and passion. Edith and Morton spent a month together later that summer, which further teased at the relationship's inevitable tapering off, which it was indeed beginning to do. Edith Wharton moved into the first permanent residence of her own the following January of 1910 as Paris was deluged by winter rains and dramatic floods. Her new apartment at 53 Rue de Varennes was just a few doors down from the Vanderbilts, the one that she had been renting as much as she could for the past few years. As the year progressed, she had maintained a connection and an occasional correspondence and even amicable visits with Fullerton, but the affair, somewhere by the middle of 1910, at least in all of its forms of expression, was essentially over. She had asked repeatedly for him to return her letters, but Fullerton retreated into his non-committal responses, or worse, his silence. And as we now know, he never returned them, nor destroyed them. What was important now, now that she had a permanent home in Paris, she could begin again. Another new life, in a way, if not on exactly the terms she perhaps would have liked. She returned to the Mount in 1911 with Teddy for one final tumultuous summer, during which Teddy's growing alcoholism, mental instability, and by now, infidelities became simply too much. The decision was made to sell the Mount, and indeed, it was handled by Teddy, and even without Edith's final acknowledgement. Deeply uncomfortable with the notion of divorce, she still had her earlier values, and worried about the negative press, she knew that a final legal separation was going to be the only way for them each to survive. And in 1913, in the French courts, to keep the publicity away from America, Edith's divorce from Edward Robbins Wharton became final. As war broke out, Edith settled permanently in Paris with her American life behind her. She pulled back on her writing and turned her energies into supporting the French resistance with financial contributions, as well as hard work, organizing and setting up work facilities and even hospital services for the wounded and ill. The French government awarded her the Légion d'honneur, the highest civilian honor for her efforts. By the war's end in 1919, Wharton was ready to leave Paris and divided her time between a house in the south of France and an 18th century house outside Paris on the edge of a forest through which Edith and Fullerton had so often wandered. And it was as the world turned towards a new social order of the 1920s that Edith Wharton wrote some of her most nostalgic, introspective, and yet incisive fiction on the New York of the late 19th century, The Gilded Age, which by then had vanished forever. Much has been written since the discovery of the letters about who and what Morton Fullerton was. For me, that's not really the story. Charming, intellectual, and sensual though he may have been, in the end, his unsettled history and his own demons made up a life of duplicity and unreliability. My interest is always rather in who and what Edith Wharton was— it's exhilarating to read passages quoted from her journals and letters that document the indescribable excitement of a new, all-consuming love at a time when she thought that was a possibility long past. 
and it's deeply painful to read her lines, feeling her pain and desperation at a lover who is noncommittal, lacking in clarity, or offering both sides of an emotional coin, at one moment present and passionate, the next offering a silent, empty void. As biographers began to examine the life of Edith Wharton beginning, as we said, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, it was assumed that the identity of Edith's lover so covertly hidden in the pages of her journal L'Am Close and her coded diary was her close friend Walter Van Rensselaer Berry. Walter Berry, a member of the elite New York set of the 1890s, was a longtime friend that she had met as a young woman visiting the wealthy Oceanside enclave of Bar Harbor, Maine. Barry, a friend of her brother's, was tall, extremely good-looking, and too had a European sensibility and a deep interest and passion for the pursuits that interested Edith as well. When a moment came when he might have likely asked her to marry him, that moment passed unspoken, and their relationship shifted focus and found its footing rather in an abiding friendship and one that lasted both their lifetimes. It was Walter Berry, once again, who became a support and confidant, particularly following the death of Henry James in 1916, until Berry himself died in 1927. Just perhaps, no one really knew her as well as he. At his death, Edith Wharton called him the greatest love of all her life. And perhaps, in many ways, he was. But he was not the inspiration for the nearly fictionalized love passages in her secret diaries of 1907 through 1909. He was not the one whose intensity, both emotionally and physically, was able to, at long last, unlock hers. And he was not the one with whom, for a brief, bright time, though tinged with insecurity and a lover's unreliability, she felt what, as she again was to say, what other women felt. And this is what is most important in all of this. It's what we now know was a feeling for Edith Wharton, a deep, essential, and fully human feeling that began with a sprig of witch hazel, that brief, bright burst of golden essence that can miraculously appear in a dry and barren winter. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of The Gilded Gentleman. If you've enjoyed the show, I invite you to leave a review as your calling card. I invite you to become a patron of The Gilded Gentleman by visiting patreon.com backslash The Gilded Gentleman. Your support quite literally helps me create the show. And most of all, I hope you will join me in two weeks for the next episode. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New Miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to Miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.